It's amazing being this close to Tijuana. It's yeah. a fantastic place. All these people are making shit there. Yeah. And they're also more willing to try making mm -hmm. app, try mm -hmm. making something. It's a very litigious country, the US. So often I found when you when I've tried to get things fabricated on this side of the border, <laughs> people are very wary about like trying out something that This is Shaping Logics. Our guest today is Anya Galaccio. She is an artist as well as a professor at UCSD. Her work has been exhibited in galleries all over the world, most recently in Sydney, Australia. I've personally had the pleasure of working with her on several projects, a few of which we discussed during the episode. One moment that stood out to me was when Anya recalled her own experiences of living and working in London. At the time, her network of artist friends would self-organize to host informal gallery exhibitions. I think this speaks to the possibility of creating alternative models that support artists without relying on commercial success or client work to make a living. Thanks for listening. Here is the episode. Can you maybe talk a little bit just like your background, you know, and how you started and how you ended up in San Diego? I'm very old, so this might take a really long time. <laughs> um... Well, I guess I became an artist by accident in mm. a weird way. So um, I was brought up in London. Um, and at the time that I went to school, when I went to college, it, it was free to go to... You, everyone could do one mm -hmm. free terminal degree in the UK. So um, there was no fees. Um, and my parents both came out of, like, theatre and TV. So initially when... Um, when I thought about going to school, college, I thought about doing theatre design. I don't come from a family that has any, you know, money. So I knew I was mm. going to have to work. <laughs> um, so I was thinking about something that was vocational. Um, and in the UK, you do a first year, which is called a foundation year, where you do basically two quarters where you do a bit of everything. So mm. you do design. Mm -hmm. you do It's all like classes, graphics, design, printmaking whatever and then after the second one you pick a specialization and you apply you make a portfolio and you apply to a degree course and in the UK that's a three-year unless it's architecture which is seven but if most things it's a three-year um, to do the BA and then the UK it would still be the same with architecture you do the three years then you do some time in um, with a practice and then you go back to do the next bit which is all those other exams Mm -hmm. um, so that's similar. But anyway, so I went to do the foundation year thinking that I was going to do theatre design. I was working in the theatre in the costume, in the wardrobe. And then during being on the foundation, um, my teachers, I kept changing the brief. Every time I did it, got, we were doing these design things, I kept changing the brief. And they were getting, they kept saying to me, you're not a designer, you're a art, an artist. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm not an artist. I have like nothing to say. You know, I'm a. I need a job. You know, I'm. And they were like, you're not a designer. You keep changing. This is not what we asked you to do. This is great, but it's not what we asked you to do. And um, anyway, then one of the faculty there who was a printmaking, he did printmaking. He told me to go and look at Goldsmiths, which is part of the University of London. And um, so I went to have a look at it one afternoon and it was in an old hospital building and it was just the fine art course and a fine art textile course. And I just fell in love with this place. Mm. And so from not really 
wanting to be an artist or not thinking I could be an artist or wondering what the hell that could mean. Yeah. I was just like, oh, fuck that. This place is really cool. I just feel comfortable here. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went back and I applied to Goldsmiths. I got in. All the other faculty, when I told them where I was applying, because it was one of the hardest schools to get into in, in London, they all laughed. Anyway, I got in. <laughs> so, um, and uh, yeah, when I went there to do my interview, they kept, I was doing this large printmaking and I was doing these kind of weird papier-mâché vessel things which were drawn or had reliefs all the way around them. So they weren't really painting and they weren't really sculpture. They were kind of pictures, but three-dimensional. They were kind of, yes. Yeah, so, and Goldsmiths was really the only place I could go because at that point, you just enrolled to do fine art. So you didn't go in sculpture or oh, okay. new media. Everybody was like mixed in. Yeah, everything was mixed in. And that was one of the things that was so fantastic about it as well because mm-hmm. in the way the building was, it was this old hospital. Um, so there were smaller and larger rooms. Um, basically, it was all jumbled up. There, were, mm-hmm. there was rooms in the basement, which is where the shops were, so where the wood shop was and the foundry. So mostly people gravitated to those studios because they wanted access to those shops. Mm-hmm. But, but periodically, other people would work in there. So there was painters and people, you know, and then that sometimes would cause fights because, you know, someone would work in a really messy way because they were near the shop, and then you'd get some really pretty painter working in there getting pissed off because we were ruining their painting, and we'd be like, well, you know, go and work in the painting studio then, you know. But anyway, but it, and it changed from year to year as well, which was another thing that was really exciting. Um, in the summer, the whole school got taken over for the degree shows, and the, one of the things which for me I thought was really meaningful um, was that the, the first and second years all helped. You all got assigned to a third year who's, mm. who was doing a thesis show mm. and you helped them do the installation. And, 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 and so mostly the, the ambitious third years went around to pick their first year before they got assigned a crap one. So... What what it hap- what happened was it was a quite small school. There was like 30 or 40 people in each year, so it's like 120 students. But within a couple of months, you recognized everyone, You didn't yeah. even if you didn't know them. So that kind of process also meant everyone was kind of jumbled up. And plus, you know, you would be, there would often be multi- different years in the same studio. Um, but I felt like that you really learned a lot. And then when th- the degree shows happened, it was a really great night because it felt like it felt like it was even if you were a first year, it felt like your show. Mm-hmm. You yeah, had a, you part sk- of it. Yeah, you had skin in the game and you'd yeah. made help make it. And you really learned a lot about all of this other stuff about how you put on an exhibition in a week. You know, <laughs> you've been working all year on in terms of making maybe this work but you have a really short period of time to make the space look great, to install mm. it. Something always unexpected happens or you get somebody next door to you in the next bit of the space doing something that you haven't anticipated that blocks the light out or they paint their wall a funny color, which fucks you up. I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I just feel like all of that stuff is really kind of exciting in terms of keeping you open, in terms of... Um, making work there's a bit in the studio which maybe is idealized but then you're always having to negotiate with other people and so for me I think to me that's a kind of connection I think about in terms of working with architects Mm. so um anyway I mean during I had I really struggled being at college I'm a sort of 
always ask really stupid questions, you know, and keep changing everything and make it difficult for myself. So in the second year, I was really struggling again with this idea about how can I be an artist? What the hell does that mean? That just sounds so bougie and like, you I mean, like what I mean? And at that point, there wasn't really an art world in, in London, in the UK. So this is really, you know, this is in the mid 80s mm. um, before the Internet. <laughs> if anyone can imagine that you know where we used to wait for like flash art and art forum or these few art magazines you know to come and we'd look in the art and that would be how we knew yeah. what was going on in america yeah. or in europe um it's kind of crazy you know um we'd all sit in the bar like pouring over this magazine yeah. um but in this, another sense that kind of created discussion which was exciting mm -hmm. because we we're all around a magazine rather than now maybe you just sit on your phone yeah, like going like through isolated. yeah and you might you might like something so the two of you might say yeah i like that too but it's not the same as sitting in the bar yeah or a coffee shop if you're not a drinker but you know <laughs> yeah. kind of shooting the shit and like saying like discussing that stuff yeah. so I, I i really enjoyed all of that anyway i kept threatening to leave because i was so terrified about like what was i doing and what what was this stuff i was making and why was i making it, it just seemed really self-indulgent and um one of my tutors this guy called richard wentworth um he was he was retiring he was leaving and he heard that um that i was thinking about leaving and he kind of you know pointed around this the bar and he was just like look you know you can't all be famous artists there's like too many of you <laughs> you know there's like you're up but that doesn't mean to say you're not all going to do something great and he um you know he and then he kind of reeled off this list of people from like brian ferry to malcolm mclaren mm. to um conran who actually does, um, you know, who is a huge restaurateur. All of these people who um, went to art school, mm -hmm. none of whom are arts, uh, artists, mm -hmm. but are creative and have all been highly successful, mostly in music, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of bands. Um, but again, restaurants and other kind of design fields. And he was just like, it doesn't matter. You know, you have three years to just enjoy yourself. Stop, you know, beating yourself up and just, just like lean into it. Hmm. and some, and then just see what happens. And so I don't know why. Anyway, that just seemed like common sense after he'd said it. And um, so, yeah, so I stayed and um, thinking, okay, I'm just going to do this, and then I'll probably just go and work in the theater. And then um, Damien Hurst, um, he was the year below me in the, my third year, um, his second year we spent we fa he found this building this derelict building in the docks and we um discussed doing this exhibition which is called freeze which mm. has become this you know seminal exhibition yeah. which was quite shitty really but it was but it was more about the kind of balls of doing it that yeah. we did this thing and we went to um these property developers again it was this there was this kind of crash all this property the docklands were starting to be developed in the, in london um i think thatcher was probably still it was still a conservative government but anyway it was just like there was this whole kind of everything was getting privatized and all of this stuff was happening and then all of a sudden there was a kind of crash so we worked out that there were all these property developers who had property, but they didn't want to go to the next step with it because the, the market wasn't right anymore. Yeah. And so we essentially worked out 
that we could go to these people with these buildings, which were semi-derelict, but the the rules aren't probably quite as strict there as they are here or anyway, you know. So basically we got them to let us have the buildings on a short term mm. to do an exhibition. So they didn't charge us. Mm. And mostly, and we cleaned all the bird shit out and, you know, mm. then we found Beck's beer. And there was a guy at Beck's beer at that point who thought that it was cool. So he would give us beer for the opening. Mm. So we just did, or we went to a, le- a lighting company and they lent us like fluorescent strips and we took, you know, we took everything back. But all of, for all of those people, it was like free promotion and we never mm. asked them for money. So they were giving us stuff that they had and we, and they were maybe giving us like two or three hundred dollars worth of beer. You know, it's like nothing for a huge corporation, yeah. but it was like a cool thing to be associated with. Um, and yeah, so, you know, I just basically I was in freeze. And then from that, I got asked to be in another exhibition about six months later. And then I got asked to be in another exhibition mm. and um I was working in the opera again because I'd left college by that point. So I worked for like three or four months of the year for this opera company, making props and um, costume, and like buying fabric, like buying shit for them for the costumes and working backstage and doing all of this stuff. And that would make me enough money, just about, because I had subsidized housing. <laughs> I left school with with like, I don't know, three or four thousand pounds worth of debt which seemed huge to me but was like nothing (laughs) you know Uh, i paid that off in like six months um again we got a whole group of us got a studio in this it was fucking freezing but again a derelict a, a warehouse that was going to be um converted into luxury apartments at some point but had no had no we basically ran extension cables and had fluorescent lights on like stands. It was absolutely freezing, but we paid like 10 quid each <coughs> for our nice. bit of it. So, you know, I, I mean, I set up and my peers, we set up these very, there's the situation where our, our living expenses were really low. You don't need health insurance in the UK. So that well, that's huge. Um, and so I could, like you know i could live i could work three or four months a year like for a reasonable amount of money Mm -hmm. and the rest of the time i got like unemployment or little jobs here and there Mm -hmm. and so i could like be an artist and then i did that for like six years and this is after school or during during your school time during no during school i worked in the summers like i did like film i worked like and did film catering stuff Mm. or i worked for this opera company in the summer holidays because we had like those three month holidays and then i would get some money to kind of keep me through um but when i left so after i did freeze which was in just when i graduated you know i basically kept getting asked to do an exhibition Mm. like six or six or seven months apart and then they started to get more frequent. And then after like six years, and I still don't think of myself as an artist. <laughs> um, after about six years, I looked at my CV and then, I'm, and then I basically got asked to do this exhibition in Vienna um, for this gallery called Krinzinger. And um, it clashed with the opera, with the performances of the opera. So if it had been with the, just the... the, the um, rehearsals they would have been fine with me like taking a week off to go to do the install but it was the performances and then I used to be backstage like help Mm. like setting everything up Mm. and helping them get dressed and I did like 
everything. So obviously that was like, you know, that was a lot for the singers because they're used to me being there yep. for the, for another person to cover. So basically I, ha- I had to choose. And they were really sweet. They were like, you need to, you need to do this other thing now. You need to just commit to it. Yeah. So, um, so I so I kind of decided grudgingly <laughs> that I couldn't really not call myself an artist anymore. But um, I don't know. I think it's just weird. I think often you just fall into things. Right. Yeah. It seems like uh, um, when you were veered away from design and land the school, and you didn't pick like a. I don't know, like a concrete medium, I guess. You were going to go into painting or sculpture and you were kind of finding yourself in a way or, I guess, developing a style. How, how did you, I guess, your uh, work um, mature or develop since, from <laughs> starting to, like, say, the freeze exhibition? It hasn't matured. Um, <laughs> I'm a mess, you know. I think, I, I think because I... Um, Basically, I, for a really long time, I would have probably been called an installation artist. Mm -hmm. So I continued to be asked to do projects in these kind of derelict or temporary Mm. kind of spaces. And so for the most part, I would make a project like I was working with fruit, I was working with flowers, I was working with organic materials and things, which were cheap because I needed to fill a huge space pretty quickly without very much money because all of these exhibitions like no one had any money um they'd give us beer and they'd give us shit but i'd worked out that i could like you know get someone to donate me a ton of lead or they could donate me a ton of oranges or they'd give me a really good price because they'd give me the ones which were had all the bruises on already going bad yeah yeah yeah, something (laughs) like that so i'd be like okay then i have to do something with like what can you do with a ton of stinky oranges Um, and it, and it's about taking up space. And, um, I like the fact that at the end of the exhibition, most of my work went in the dumpster. So I didn't have to worry about it. I did have this ton of lead, which I carted from one studio to another studio and up and down fire escapes for years. It was nearly killed me. Um, and then of course the moment I got rid of it, um, somebody asked me to rework, do that piece. And I was just like, it didn't do it again but um you know it's sod's law but all my other friends of course who were working in a not you know with more conventional materials making objects that once they were complete were completed or paintings they all had these huge storage issues of having to take care of everything and being really freaked out that they were going to lose their studio because what the hell where they were they going to put all this stuff so i have a really complicated relationship to objects I, you know, I really love stuff and materials, but at the same time, I feel really, um, I don't know what the right word is, you know, I can't, I kind of can't deal with it. It's like the responsibility of it. Or like having it. Yeah. Cause then I feel like I have to, I have to look after it, Yeah, you know, and then I'm like, shit, then, you know, so I felt like initially I'd made this really neat, I'd kind of solved it by making things making these things that were temporal, that evolved, that decayed, that basically, you know, demanded to be got rid of, that I didn't have to feel sentimental about them. And I could always remake them. So I often think about my work a bit like cooking. You know, you have a good recipe, Mm. something Mm -hmm. that everyone, they'll be like, hey, you, you know, 
<laughs> something particular that they people ask you to bring for a potluck or whatever. You know, you and sometimes it comes out better than other times. So I think a lot of the early work of, of it being like that, you can always remake it. And it's about being in the moment and it's about who's there. Yeah. And about, so some of it is kind of social and the context. Do you think you got there by accident or do you, or was it uh, kind of like a conscious choice that you went that way because of your personality? Um, say, as opposed to some of your colleagues that work with more conventional materials, you're just like, I don't want to deal with it. So I'm just going to work around uh, this. It was a combination of things. I mean, some of it, I think my background in the theater um, and having to be resourceful and having mm-hmm. to, again, you know, so that to me, that was like my weird connection back to design that I was like a buyer. Mm-hmm. So I'd sit down with the designer and they would show me that they would tell me what they wanted. And then I would go out and I'd find like fabrics or ceramic, you know, depending mm-hmm. whether it was for the set or for the costumes. And then I'd come back with all this stuff. You know, like, is this what you meant? Mm-hmm. You know, even but you know, even going and buying fabrics. And then once I was doing it for a lot, you know, I I knew absolutely everything because every day I was going to the markets or the store, different types of stores. There's all these amazing um, Indian fabric stores in um, in the UK. People come there to buy their wedding stories, and they come to buy incredible jewelry because they know it's like 24 karat gold. So I knew all the places to go to go and get all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I liked this kind of connection of like interpreting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in terms of the way I make my work still to this day, like how I kind of worked with, with, um, with Abel and, um, Richard and Luis, you know, to me, it's about, um, putting together a team. And so that whilst theoretically, Sky I'm the team. What? Sky, Sky team. team. They were called Sky Team. <laughs> Putting together a team, um, you know, I'm supposedly the continuous, you know, thread that goes through, but every project slightly changes mm-hmm. depending on who the team is, mm-hmm. depending on the site, on the context. It's, it's all these different things. So then I become more like a producer. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm comfortable with that mostly because mm-hmm. of coming from this background where in the theater, Whilst, of course, the people on the stage, the performers, are who everyone thinks is, are important mm-hmm. and everyone thinks the director is important, actually, a good production is, isn't just about those people on the stage. It's about all the people that help them to get there, you mm-hmm. know, making them feel that they're their character by what they're wearing, by the environment. Um, and, you know, even just, you know, stupid banal shit like turning the, the lights and the sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that, you know, having worked in some really amazing productions of, you know, and feeling that intensity is quite intense feeling, you know, when it's going well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, f- I really enjoy that. And, um, and that's kind of how I sort of set my projects up. You know, each time someone asks me to do something, um, the work sort of mostly comes somehow out of that invitation. And then it's about building a team. So I guess my thing that I'm mostly frustrated with at this point, having been doing this for a very long time now, is that I still don't have the money to... um, actually have at least a skeleton crew mm. that are consistent 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes everything really unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And the stakes are pretty high often now because I'm actually quite an established and very successful artist. <laughs> so um, people have a certain expectation. They didn't have any expectation at the beginning. And sometimes I found that easier, you know, you know, I'm, I, I don't know. I always think I'm a bit like an ugly duckling thing. I, I'm better when people aren't noticing me. When people expect me to do well, I usually fuck up. Mm-hmm. I can't really deal with it. Yeah. But I'm, but I'm a really good underdog. You know, yeah. if people tell me I can't do something, then I'm like, fuck you. Yeah. And then I normally do something really, you know, somehow, I don't know what happens. Yeah. Some other thing kicks in. It's that resourceful kind of <laughs> mentality, right? Yeah. yeah. And it pushes you through. No, I totally. I so, um. But yeah, but I mean, like the 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 beautiful minds, the crazy clay printing machine. You no, know, yeah. I still wouldn't say that that work is really resolved. <laughs> um, Abel won't work on it anymore. He's, he's like, I don't have anything to do with that fucking thing. Yeah, but, Abel, Abel doesn't want to work at all. No. <laughs> oh, really? Mm, no. But um, but like the tr- the the tree, the stainless steel tree that we made in Liverpool, in Manchester, Liverpool, my God, uh-huh. in Manchester for the Whitworth, you know, yeah. I would love to do. It's like I learned a lot of really useless stuff doing that, <laughs> and it would be really great to make another ver- some to use some of the stuff that we um, yeah. that came out of that to make something else. So, um, but it never seems to ever kind of quite work out like that. So um, going back, you're back in London. You're getting more um, more work right after school. How did, how did you end up in San Diego? Um, my partner, Kelly, hated living in London. I, I cannot imagine why. <laughs> she's, she, no, she, I mean, she was born in Riverside, so she couldn't co- cope with the lack of light. Mm. So we met mm. in, um, in San Francisco. She was living in Oakland. She'd been to the... She'd done... Um, undergrad at the art institute in san Mm -hmm. francisco and i was there doing a residency for three months um between oxford university and the san francisco art institute and i met her while i was there Mm. and then she she lost her job through the she was working with this paper and they moved so i was just like hey just come to london so (laughs) she um she came to london so she lived me she we were there for six years which was which was great was a little stressful because she was illegally there. Uh, so um, illegal immigrant. <laughs> yep. Um, so you know, but um, yeah, we we had a. She had a, after about four years, I think it was. She got a. We went to a lawyer, and they said, "Well, you have to live. You have to illegally do the first bit illegally to do the next bit." So we had to prove that we were codependent. So she couldn't. Mm. We couldn't have a long term relationship. So the lawyers, so anyway, and then we, um, after we had proved this, we had to collect all this evidence, which was really hard because everyone just emails and texts. So we had to get people to send us postcards, like addressed to both of us. Wow. And we had to take photographs with both of us. Wow. Like, had, we had loads of pictures of each other, but not pictures hardly um, together. together. Yeah. Anyway, we did all this weird stuff. Anyway, we went to the, the, the British consulate in LA with this ginormous binder of stuff to get this paper and 
we were arguing we were so stressed out about it and the woman at the desk just took one look at us and she was like oh my god you're a couple just give me this piece of paper that piece of paper and this other piece of paper and we were really disappointed because we'd like got this ginormous big binder of stuff she's like i don't need that come back in two hours so anyway so we lived there and um so kelly really wanted to come back to southern california Mm. and a lot of my work is related to sort of tangentially to landscape. Mm-hmm. And so I was just, and I t- was fascinated. Everyone, of course, who doesn't live in America is fascinated with the mm-hmm. idea of America, right. particularly the idea of California. Mm-hmm. All of those kind of cliches. So I was just like, okay, what the hell, you know? Um, so, um, and then some friends of mine, artists I knew, they teach at UCSD mm-hmm. and the, a, a position came up and I wasn't teaching in London. Um, they kind of approached me. So the first year I didn't do it and then they had a failed search and then the second year they came back to me again and it wasn't a done deal or anything. And I, again, I was just like, well, what the hell, you know, <laughs> give it a go because I couldn't work out. I had an, We had a house and we had all of this other stuff and I'd worked out we could swap but I couldn't get my head around the health insurance. Mm. You know, I could yeah. just about have enough money for us to come for three or four months at a time just to like work. Cause I mm-hmm. thought we could swap studios and houses and cars, but then I could get enough money for us to live, but I couldn't get enough money for this other thing. Um, so yeah, anyway, so this job came up and I applied for this job and I got the job. Nice. And then I didn't make any work for three years because I was so traumatized. But anyway, you know, I mean, but it, it's really, it was really interesting because I think we have, you know, being brought up in the UK, we think there are so many similarities between America and England. Yeah. And it's just like, clearly, it is another country. It's another yeah. world. It's another, we speak English in a totally different way. We right. use everything. <laughs> it's an alien place. So I felt like I might as well have landed on the moon. <laughs> Had um, you been to San Diego before you, you, you moved here? Yes. I came in, I can't remember now if it's like 96 or 98. Uh-huh. I came for Insight. I don't know if you ever saw any of those. I was in like the second Insight. Uh-huh. So I actually I made a piece of work downtown in the museum it was before the museum of contemporary art actually had that space yeah they mm. they 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 used it that um time it was a kind of still like a baggage building or something and i made a piece in tijuana um at agua caliente mm-hmm. which um the casino it had been a casino but it, now it's a school but it had been mm. built as a school i mean a casino um you know during prohibition right and, um, and then I think the Cardenas, is that the right name? The Mexican president? Oh, yeah, yeah. The one who, uh, yeah. So he, when he came in, he basically outlawed gambling and stuff. Or he closed the casino down and he made it into a school. Um, anyway, so it's a school now and there's a couple of, there, there probably is a casino around there, but um, there was a derelict kind of swimming pool um, and a couple of other kind of bits of, left kind of ruins left from this original building and these kids were playing soccer in the swimming pool which was all covered in graffiti and and it was all it had earthquake it was like cracks everywhere 
so my first proposal was to mend the swimming pool so that we could put water in it so that the kids could use it. And that was going to cost too much money. Um, and so then I basically gold leafed all the area. We had blue tile, so but a lot of the tile had come away. So we gold leafed all the area that was behind the the blue tile. Mm-hmm. And I um, used um, gold um, foil from chocolate wrappers so i did a i did a piece in la at the same time and i painted the gallery there with chocolate and in the in the piece in tijuana was really looked really beautiful but it was just the you know it was cheap it was like Mm. the gold paper from the chocolate bars Mm -hmm. um and so i was kind of interested in like who got the best piece you know the pet the chocolate was painted on the wall it smelled really beautiful great but it looked disgusting (laughs) and the piece in the in the in, in mexico was I guess it looked really beautiful, but I guess it was worthless. But right. I mean, mm-hmm. um, and it did this really interesting thing because if you walk down, you walked into the pool and you walk down it, um, to the deep end, the whole that more or less the whole of the end wall was gold leafed, mm. um, and so it was bigger than you. And depending on the time of day, at certain times of the day it sucked all the light up, and then at other times of the day it was really refractive and it bounced all the light back. Um, and then I planted a pulmeria, this pink tree in this bit of um, gash of the, again, another bit of the kind of earthquake damage. So there was this really beautiful pink thing that was like a kind of miracle hmm. growing out of this thing, um, out of this gash in the in the pool. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. That's What, that's, what year was this? Like 96 or 98, look in the book, I don't know. 96, 98, um, something like that. Um, So I was here for like two or three weeks doing that. I stayed downtown and I drove, they drove me backwards and forwards to TJ. But it was interesting because the, the, when I was here, they started putting the fence into the ocean. Mm -hmm. So the fence wasn't in the ocean Mm -hmm. that first Mm -hmm. time when I came. I think they used like the landing gear for Desert Storm or something. And there were still bits. I remember we looked. There were places there also at the fence where it still was chain link. Yeah. And there was bits where you could stick your head through. And then all of a sudden, like from nowhere, like, you know, a truck would show up if you, you know, stuck your head through. But I I thought that that was really, it was really, for me, it was really fascinating because coming from Europe, my experience of like that kind of uh, impenetrable, you know, those those borders was thinking about the Berlin, Berlin Wall, right? Which mm-hmm. had just come down mm-hmm. about that time, I think. Um, so all the focus, my whole focus, or my understanding had a lot of my youth had been about the Berlin Wall, mm-hmm. or even north and south in terms of Ireland, again, mm. and the troubles and this kind of um, border people trying to cross the border and I never re- I was just oblivious to the fact that there was this border here that was so militarized yeah um and it was really again pre the internet and all of these other things in terms of how our tv you know tv yeah. news focuses on issues that are more local mm-hmm. um that um and it's strange living here again in terms of knowing there are certain things happening in europe yeah and like scanning you know they're not they're never meant they're not really mentioned as priorities on the kind of radio right. or um 
so I, I don't know. I, again, I found that that was really something that was really interesting to me. It's kind of dumb, but, you know, moving here in terms of having to kind of recalibrate a sense of history or yeah. a sense of identity or what was true. Um, seeing Europe and seeing my own like life through a different lens, through being here, has been really kind of intense, really. Um <laughs> It's like going kind of back to the beginning and being a kid. Just the, really? a lot of things that you just, I never questioned. Um, and now I'm like here. Like what? We're getting way off architecture now. Whoa. <laughs> well, <it's, laughs> yeah, it doesn't have to be architecture. No, but um, I get stuff to do with privilege and, mm-hmm. and property and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. all of that bullshit. Yeah. Um, race. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was very privileged to be brought up in London, which is pretty mixed. Yeah. So it's easy to overlook or not be aware to a certain degree Mm -hmm. of certain things. There's also not guns in the UK. Right. Mm. The police don't have guns. And San Diego is like a military town. No, exactly. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like the complete it's opposite. It's crazy because there's all of the different arms of the military here. Right. So, yeah. And I was brought up protesting as well, you know, in the 60s and 70s, like going on all these different marches. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was just something that you kind of did. You never got arrested. Or like you'd have to do something really bad yeah. to be arrested. So coming here and realizing that to do something like that here potentially is really dangerous is really again it's just a really strange um strange isn't the right word but um you know it just throws everything up in the air right Mm -hmm. you also mentioned land and i know land in london specifically is extremely expensive and i guess you have to be really privileged to own land there and i guess you have to share it there's different laws though about like you know landowners there in terms of people that have huge farms who have you know massive estates they have to have um and um they have to have a right of way across the land right so there has to be a walking path uh-huh. you can't vandalize so like so there's always has to be a way from getting all the way across on foot so that people and this is from you know feudal times um, when so they the, had when the animals would graze, right? Is that the idea? There's grazing rights as well, but no, just for 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 people to be able to walk, like mm. from one village to the other. And so, um, and this has been maintained, and it's now called right to roam. But basically, now it's for hikers. But it it came out of more um, just like servants and uh, you know working mm. people having mm-hmm. to be able to move around. Um, so, you know, if you run into, you know, if you run into the middle of a field of crops and destroy them, you can of course be arrested, but there's always a path down the side. And there's these special, these funny gate things called styles where you can, you can kind of climb over them. So the animals don't get out. Mm. Um, but I was really shocked when I came here and I went to places like Texas where there's thousands and thousands (laughs) and thousands of acres and it's all fenced off with barbed wire. And if you go onto someone's onto that property, you can get shot, and you, uh, you know you're trespassing. Right. And I would, and to me, that's just like so strange. And then often, you know, when wealthy Americans buy these amazing, huge estates in the in Europe, mm-hmm. in the UK, they get really pissed off because <laughs> they they're used to not having to. You know, you can't go into someone's house, you can't go into someone's garden. But if you have that much land. 
you have to allow people there has to be a way that they can cross it public right of way there's a public right of way yeah. yeah so to me that is int- that is a really something that's very particular yeah um that is different that's different yeah yeah well i mean the whole idea of land is it's really interesting to me because well recently i i got in a conversation with a cousin of mine mm-hmm. and we get in this like really really stupid conversation sometimes <clears throat> and uh yeah we talked about land and he had, and he brought up the point of where did the idea come from of land ownership of you know of you taking a little piece of the earth really mm-hmm. you know because it doesn't really belong to us it belongs to nature it belongs to animals it belongs and where did that where 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 when did we become so i guess entitled to just kind of take it. The Europeans, when they came to colonize, the, yeah. um, I don't know how come it started with Europe first, but yeah, I mean, the native people. So it's you guys' no- fault. Hmm? So it's you guys' fault. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. Anyway, well, let's, let's trace your heritage parts and see if there's any Spanish in there. But yeah, no, totally. But I think, you know, it's... Um, you know, people f- coming here, yeah. looking for wealth, looking for whatever, or looking to escape some kind of persecution from where, you know, a lot of a lot of um, immigrants that came, especially to North America, anyway, escaping some kind of religious persecution in Europe. And then to me, that just makes it even more shocking that now this, you know, situation with like not wanting to let other people in who are trying to escape persecution. Yeah, yeah it's wild. <laughs> it is, um, anyway, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's complicated. It's like, uh, I recently I got into that similar subject of like who owns what, you know, because like, <clears throat> and I think I came across this concept of like, um, common common law or common something but the idea is also you know like who owns like the oil of the world or you know just because it you and i don't really understand how this works either somebody the same claimed be, it yeah, yeah you claim like you name it yeah you claim like the and the same goes with like you know resources like gold um all er, everything that comes from the earth basically because it all even oil comes from the earth you know and all the other rocks and stuff <clears throat> yeah i was obsessed with antarctica for a really long time really because antarctica i think it's just about to run out but technically it's the only place in the world that doesn't belong to anyone in terms right. of the way that everyone thinks everything belongs to them right and mm-hmm. it has all these um scientific camps there yeah they're all research stations so all of these different um nation states have um interests in it um, and that's why they all put research stations there. So yeah. they could all claim, make a claim, but I don't know. I can't remember totally, but a lot of the, the research there is supposed to be purely scientific mm-hmm. and it's not supposed to be exploratory in terms of, um, commerce. So they're not supposed to be looking for oil. They're supposed to be looking at, looking at the ice or, or the environment there to actually analyze and understand mm-hmm. other aspects of um history or geology yeah. whatever mm-hmm. um but I, I don't know what's going to happen soon yeah. um it's melting anyway because we fucked up but yeah. um <laughs> but yes. i really love the idea of it that, that of this kind of um 
it seemed like in a romantic way this kind of blank space which of course it is not right but symbolically for a yeah. long time um it's a very interesting place have you ever seen that doc- the um werner herzog documentary yeah yeah encounters at the end of the world i think it's yeah, called yeah, yeah it's very alien no totally yeah totally but i mean you know the place that we're in now like until fairly recently this was mexico yeah in terms of the arc of history yeah. so um you know, Italy itself is also like a really relatively new country mm-hmm. in that it was, it was, um, you know, principalities sure, and yeah. whatever. So um, I think our ideas of time and like rules of like what is can like can be quite fluid and, and change. Anyway. So, um, we're going to pack a little bit to your work. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Quick. <laughs> we're digging a really deep hole here. Um, how, like, to me, it seems very hard for an artist to survive, uh, especially back then without the internet. Uh, how, how did you, I guess you could say, like, network your work, or how did you start getting commissions? Did you have to put in a lot of network of like meeting people or was it just kind of like organic? Go to the bar. I mean, what about the bloody internet for fuck's sake? <laughs> Honestly, what? imagine what life was like before the internet. You talked to people, you <laughs> yeah. got on the bus and you talked to the person next to you. Yeah. You know, again, I mean, I don't know. I think, I mean, America's a big country. But I mean, think about Mexico City. Right. It's this really, you know, cosmopolitan, like mm-hmm. there's so many people there. It's a really international city. There's so many mm-hmm. creative people mm-hmm. there. Um, how do people meet? They meet at parties. Yeah. They meet in coffee shops. Yeah. They still meet in the really old fashioned way. Right. I think. Yeah, um, yeah. And London was, to me, was like that. Um, so there was a group of us that left school at the same time ish. We were all quite. I don't know. We were ambitious in a different way. Like we worked out that there were all these spaces and we had nothing to lose. We were like, hey, will you lend us this space? Sometimes people said no and sometimes people said yes. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we were like, we haven't got any money, but we can do this thing. We can put your name on it. We always made like a private view card and it was still, we still mailed them out because it was before the internet. So, you know, people got, um, we went to... um, we got some good ma- we got some mail I don't know how we got the mailing lists from the galleries but anyway so um yeah it was just like and there wasn't that much going on initially so everyone like very soon there was free beer you know <laughs> people show up if there's free beer of course um and so it was a kind of combination of being really a social mm-hmm. kind of thing and then you know more people kind of started coming to these different exhibitions we'd go to these different ones then um, I don't know. I mean, I guess for whatever other reason, I mean, people started then coming to London. I mean, a lot of people fly through London anyway. So a few of our teachers kind of got involved, but um, people started noticing from the outside, I get outside of the UK. Mm. And um, yeah, so yeah, I don't really know how it happened, but you know, I think in like when you're in your twenties, you're kind of pretty open. Yeah. Well, I was, and you know, to you know, and because it, as long as it didn't cost me money to do it, <laughs> I would do it. So I mean, I would do an exhibition. So um, I got started being asked to do these exhibitions in these commercial galleries, which seemed really nuts 
because no one ever tried to sell anything. Um, but I guess in terms of how much a commercial gallery it costs to put an exhibition at that point, you know, to fly me to Zurich or to fly me to Vienna and to feed me for a week, they had to feed me yeah. and I can eat a lot. You know, they, um, you know, they had to feed me and put me up. Sometimes I get put in hotels and sometimes I'd be in someone's spare room. So, um, and they'd have to provide like mostly at the, that point I was working a lot with the flowers. So they'd have to buy the flowers, but they didn't pay for my labor. I didn't get an honorarium. So, you know, but I was living really cheaply, you know, um, in London. So it was just this kind of weird thing that kind of happened organically. And one thing just kind of led to another. um, And I was kind of really open. And then I don't know how soon in like Carsten started working with me. Like, I got asked that uh, this guy, Carsten Schubert, um, opened a gallery, a, a, a commercial gallery in London, and he asked to represent me, which again I was really surprised about because he never really, he didn't really overtly try and sell anything. And mm-hmm. I wasn't really trying to make anything that was, well, my logic was people, you can sell anything. Like, it's not my job to do the selling, but mm-hmm. people that mm-hmm. are good at selling shit can sell anything. So it, then it becomes a kind of combination about other stuff around the work. It isn't so much, it is the work, but it's also who the, who the artist is, mm-hmm. that context, all of this other kind of stuff. It's almost like a marketing package. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I think I was, so a lot of it is just like luck and chance that I happen to be in the right place at the right time. And then I'm pretty, um, you know, and I took advantage of the situation, you know, and I didn't say no to things. I think now a lot of people might say no to some of the yeah. stuff that I said yes to because they'd like be like, oh, well, I want to get paid. Yeah, exactly. No, it seems like you were uh, very open to compromise and at least and, uh, you know, try things without, you know, getting paid essentially i mean you were getting taken care of but you weren't making any money yeah yeah and i but i could do that because of the situation i was living in so i don't know yeah if i if i was american if i was here and i left college with 40 to 60 thousand dollars worth of debt well i probably wouldn't have gone i probably would have left in the second year when i had my freak out i'd be like what the fuck am i doing I don't, I really don't know. Um, so I think the decisions, I could continued making these, these kind of rant, these decisions about working in this more ephemeral way for a really long time because I didn't have to worry about, I mean, I was making enough money to look after myself, but I wasn't making, I wasn't generating enough money to have a mortgage or right. pay all of these, you know, all of this other stuff that's more grown up. And I didn't, I didn't need to. Um, and then, you know, eventually I, I got, um, I got this thing called the Paul Hamlin founder award, which was, I can't remember what it was. I think it was like 40 grand over three years. Nice which was no strings attached. So, um, you know, but getting like 10, 15 grand at that point, you know, was rich. So then I, then I started experimenting with bronze and stuff like that. Cause I could actually do some things. Yeah. yeah, Without having to, cause normally the way that it works is someone asks me to do a project and then the project gets developed because they asked me to do the project, which, 
you know, sometimes works but doesn't necessarily work because people don't really want to, they don't really want to invest the amount of money that it really takes to research a project, Mm -hmm. you know. So often in terms of artists who do a lot of public art and stuff, I think people have, you know, at a certain point, you have a kind of portfolio of projects that have been rejected. Not, you know, that you proposed and then that one didn't get picked or yeah. it didn't get made. So you're just kind of like, okay, well, I'll just throw this one back, you know, yeah. I'll throw this one back in again. Um, and I guess ideally when artists get to a certain level of having it, you know, they have a kind of balance. They have a certain, like, you know, uh, certain aspect of their practice, which is maybe more saleable, uh-huh. um, which supports the other bit of their practice, which is maybe more experimental, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. So there's always this level of subsidizing going on in terms of, you know, I guess I, hopefully that still happens with architecture practices. Yeah. I mean, when I was in the UK, I, I had a lot of friends that were architects and I used to, you know, that it would always be really great. I could just go into the office and I could s- sit down and kind of brainstorm, you know. And it seems to me that the, uh, an architectural training is about brainstorming and model making. All of that beginning bit often of, of architectural projects is quite conceptual. Mm-hmm. It isn't actually how are we going to build this thing. Right. It's like what do we want to do? Yeah. And it can be quite left field, depending yeah. on who the architect is or the practices. Right. But um, but what's really for me, from my perspective, is really great. Has been really great about that is that I've had access to architects. Sometimes I've had interns and other people, so they've been quite happy to lend me. <laughs> in the past, not since I've been here, but you know, they did lend me people um, to help me, not for you know, for a certain number of hours to draw something up because it was good. Mm. It was good experience for that person. Right. To, and it was like, it didn't matter if they fucked that up because it wasn't on a real building. It was <laughs> like for me. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, I had this kind of network again of people that would do me favors who yeah. knew who I was. We all kind of like grew up together. Mm. And so, you know, I think to me, that's a kind of a uh, different kind of economy that's sustaining yeah. in terms of everybody feeding into feeding into each other um you know the way i think isn't the way they think so sometimes it could be annoying that i would come and ask some stupid question depending on who it was and other times people found that exciting because it just you know it kind of wakes you up or what shakes you out of what you're used to doing um the support system really yeah no it's huge so yeah i mean i think that's one of the things that's been quite hard being here is that my all of those people who are really my support system because they've known me from the beginning, they're all in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I've worked, I have worked on some things like online with like students from the Royal College of Art. Mm-hmm. Which, and the time difference, the eight hour time difference has sort of almost has worked quite well. Because, um, you know, um, but um, yeah, but it seems weird. But it's been really hard to sustain that or to build that up here. <laughs> Because everyone has such a huge level of debt here, oh yeah, that you can't. You have to work. You, you can't. You yeah, but I mean, these mm. these the students I've worked with in the UK, they're doing jobs and stuff, but that their their job that they're doing is really is for paying their rent and for paying their. It's not. Yeah, they not, can keep their cost of living <laughs> relatively low. Well, they're not having. Yeah, yeah, you can't do that. No, they basically really don't have huge fees. 
So they might, they just, they're working to basically cover their living expenses and stuff. So if I can throw someone a few thousand dollars, that's fine. Yeah. Because they're not needing that to live off. Whereas here, it's a totally different, um, it's a totally different situation. Right. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, right here in America, we're living in a, I guess you'd call it a side hustle uh, economy right now with everybody who's you know everybody young has like school. a couple they, they have their, their main job and they have like a, a hobby job or like what they're passionate about and like a side gig i guess so i mean everybody's kind of doing multiple things no but i mean that's what i but i suppose for me that's normal yeah because that's how i i mean i still sort of do that yeah but i think what is more stress it's really stressful here it wasn't i it wasn't so stressful yeah when i was doing that when right. i was like starting out and it's it is you know um you know it, it is just really hard to be paid appropriately for your mm. labor yeah. um because i mean i don't get paid appropriately for my labor even right. now um it's ridiculous so um i've never really cracked that the um how you how you work that out um well that's another thing i wanted to talk to you about um like for instance there you know cities like new york la london they're very they have an art network or hub that is very prominent um and san diego is not that mm -hmm. it's far from it like, how do you feel about like i guess like the local art scene or the um I think it well for me I I suppose I can live here because I have my basically I have an international reputation right mm -hmm. and I'm represented by four four international galleries so I have a gallery in LA a gallery in New York a gallery in London a gallery in Amsterdam I had other galleries but I don't make enough work even for those four so it's ridiculous yeah. so you know I don't have um you know so people go to those galleries and get me through, you know, I don't go out touting, like looking for work. Right. Um, but I'm still really in touch with not all of those people, but some of those people that I was at college with. And so the thing that I think that's really important about being here is that it isn't a center. And I think that there's a lot of freedom mm. in not being in a center because you can make mistakes. Yeah. You can mm. play. You can be playful and the stakes, you know, and I think there's enough people here at the times, sometimes it goes through phases, it feels like, of crossing the border being relatively straightforward and other times being a total pain in the ass. Right. But, um, you know, again, it's it's amazing to being this close to Tijuana. It's yeah. a fantastic place. All these people are making shit there. Yeah. Um, and they're also more willing to try making mm -hmm. out try mm -hmm. making something it's a very litigious country the u.s so often i found when you when i've tried to get things fabricated on this side of the border <laughs> people are very wary about like trying out something that that isn't what they normally do right because i don't believe you're going to pay them when if it doesn't work <laughs> it's a, just a different mindset you know um so i i, I don't know i think that the it's I get and that's the thing I'm always encouraging my students. It's just like 
that think of it as like a residency you know it's just like there are this is it's and it's about making a network mm -hmm. about making a network of people um and i think those people that we meet when we're at college or at certain points in yeah. our life when we're kind of growing into having some notion about who we might be as an adult whatever the fuck that might be right. you know i think those people are really mean can be really meaningful to us and and it's like and it's not always just about the people that you get on with it can be that really annoying person in your class <laughs> that hates everything you do yeah you know actually when they're not there anymore it's like kind of like a squeaky door you're like shit you know <laughs> i need it's like a balance yeah. you know you need your cheerleaders yeah you mm. need the people who have the same taste as you or maybe get you but you also you need to balance it yeah. out and um yeah i i mean i i get frustrated that it feels like it, that it keeps going through like cycles here like they gets a bit of momentum and then everyone panics that and they move to la right and mm. i'm just like oh, you know yes. and i really believe i really believe <laughs> that if people just hold their nerve yeah it's really easy to get here from la yeah <laughs> there's some really good beer down here yeah. you know you can get the train it's really easy yeah. you can get the trolley across the you know yeah. um that actually it's just about then groups organizing events so that if it's really about trying to get people from LA to come or from further south in Mexico to come mm -hmm. up, I mean, it's pretty cheap to fly in and out of TJ. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that then it's about con communicating with each other and like clusters of group of people organizing so that there's a, a weekend of a number of events mm -hmm. and then that makes it worthwhile. Like if that happens once a month or every couple of months, <clears throat> that you know accumulatively people are like yeah let's go to san diego for the weekend because yeah. it's cool you know mm -hmm. the weather's always nice there's yeah. great beer there's <laughs> great tacos there's some tacos. good art you know <laughs> there's things happening um and that's what happens in london really more or less you know it's just like and then you can kind of you know amp up the there's a lot of there's a lot of money here as well. I mean, oh, the yeah. frustration is there's a lot of money here, but everyone's so fucking conservative. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's a very conservative town. So I think that probably fills into architecture as well as, as in terms of art. Yeah, in terms of what people want to build and mm -hmm. what's acceptable. Too, you know? It's crazy because the weather's so forgiving here that people could do some really amazing, you know, in terms of working with new materials. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and having inside outside type spaces, I, I don't know. I just feel like there's so much potential here right? and there's fucking people here with money who could support it <laughs> yeah. because a lot of those, uh, a lot of those building techniques and uh, new, these new technologies, they don't have to be really expensive. Right. It's just about being nimble and resourceful or like trying to pitch something to whoever, whoever's you know um inventing the new material developing it that your project is going to be a good thing for them to have on their website to yeah. ha you know that um you know a friend of really good friends of mine they have um david adjay did this house for them and um they had no money and it was just before he got really famous in mm -hmm. london but um he they had they'd bought this old like it was a shoe factory or something it was basically like a, an old victorian box and they had already been living in it 
and they had a child and they needed to um, extend it. So they went to David and he was really excited because he'd never, he, he kind of considered it a new build because it was more or less, it was just basically, right. you know, they smashed it down because all of his projects at that point had all been, um, what do you call it, you know, when you're retrofitting like basically you know he'd made a house for jake for dinos chapman for jake chapman for chris Ophelia, but they were these they were very the the stru- the houses were you know the floors that they there wasn't enough where uh, money to totally like shell them and make a different structure inside mm. so anyway he took on this project for um and it's called the Electra house mm. and it's been so i think he won awards for it and it's been photographed all around the world and everything um but it was done for like no money and it, again it was done on this weird thing of goodwill like yeah. david was just at the point you know he wanted to do it yeah. um Giorgio, who he basically had to manage the build. That was the deal. Yeah. Lots of things went wrong. Um, <laughs> but, um, and it was really stressful. But, I mean, they still live in this bonkers house. Wow. And it's it's been published, you know. So David got a lot out of making this. Right. For his career at that point. Yeah. Making this project. So, I, I don't know. I just feel like that it's about being open. Yeah. And and maybe sometimes stepping back and thinking, okay, well, what are my boundaries? Like, what are my limits? Yeah. But how can I be involved with this person and it be beneficial, like, you know, to both sides? And I think that, that sometimes that isn't the way we think. Right. Or that isn't the way people think here. Yeah. That, um, that you know, that corporations or right. startup companies, you know, that they have something they can gain something by right. giving something mm-hmm. you just have to present it to them in the right yeah. way well we were talking uh something similar on the, or with our last guest um a lot of people feel like um they're kind of scared to do i guess more like pro bono work or, mm-hmm. or or be open to you know getting paid less because um the mentality the conservative mentality of you know you're taking advantage of me that kind of is like really prevalent here um and yeah we would we, we, we need to be more open to like those type of things where we have the freedom and you get a lot out of you know that kind of work uh, especially for somebody who's getting out of school uh or a young uh person who's starting their practice yeah. or you know getting work out there um because you know I mean, we have exposure with the internet and everything, but... No, totally, yeah. I mean, one day, Abel will get paid for doing something properly with me. But, I mean, <laughs> at some point. But, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you should speak about it, but I don't know. But I think, from my perspective, I mean, it's quite chaotic working with me and a bit of pain. I'm a pain in the ass, but I feel like those two projects that you were involved with were kind of interesting. Oh, yeah, super interesting. They were interesting like, projects. Yeah, the, actually, the first one with the clay printer, um, I wasn't even, at the time, I was actually unemployed. Like, I wasn't doing anything anyways to do. So, like, it was super fun to just have something to do, even though, yeah, like, we weren't, there was no discussion about, like, oh, we're going to, you know, it's going to be this much, or this is the budget. But I was just like, oh, this is like, let's figure it out, you know. <clears throat> Who did, was it Patrick that found you? I mm-hmm. can't remember how... You yeah, Patrick was the one that kind of put us in touch. But um, anyway, so 
I don't know. But for me, it was just like, I, I felt, but may, you know, maybe I'm the evil exploiter. I felt <laughs> like that it was, a, it was um, you know, it was an interesting challenge for, for you guys in terms of doing, I had no fucking clue what the hell we're doing. I still <laughs> don't really understand it. And so my frustration really, in terms of if I could start that project over again, would have been about bringing like the different arms of the team, like having a clearer idea going in because yeah, we got in and it was already built the machine no, no. was already there it was like we had to work for what was there no exactly and, every, and everything kind of happened like that so um you know and then you know the the initial programming was done and some i don't know <laughs> anyway so i mean i don't know i think maybe if i could start from scratch maybe that needs to start over but um but anyway, it fucking worked. Everyone said it wouldn't work. No, nobody knew what they were doing. I mean, they might th say they knew what they were doing, but I mean, nobody that worked on that project really knew what they were doing. Um, yes, people could weld and yes, people could code, but it was really arse over tit. The whole thing was nuts. <laughs> and we had this deadline. We had this hard deadline of that show opening at the museum, at which point some of the undergrads in particular were freaking out because everyone, I think, was more used to that idea of like, oh, yeah, it's 10th week, you know, it's finals week, whatever. And I was like, no, the show opens. There's going to be this thing in whatever state it is in is going to be in the exhibition. And I don't know about what how that felt like for you guys, but I think for some of the people that from UCSD, I think they were quite shocked in terms of having um, real pressure. I mean, that's how I work all the time, you know, <laughs> I'm totally dependent on the kind of involvement of the people that I've got reeled in. Usually mm -hmm. they are getting paid something. They weren't in this case. <clears throat> but, um, you know, um, it was a bit of a kind of crazy roller coaster. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. And then, and then when you came, you came to London, there mm -hmm. was structural engineers. We actually, I actually had structural engineers involved in London and they worked on the tree project as well and it was really great working with them because again it was a different um, they were very creative and open in terms of how of giving me parameters in terms of how certain things could be interpreted interpreted it was almost if I remember it's almost what we gave them was basically what got built right yes except for like you know some of the we had to shop some more extreme because the levers, there was like these crazy cantilevers, but other than that, yeah, because they did a wind test, they simulated a wind test, and wow. the um, and that was going to be really crazy because it was going over the building, but yeah, but that's why we worked like that because I'd worked with engineers in the past mm. and and, fa and fabricators, and so the tree project basically, um, I got asked to make this, um project for this museum that was being renovated and expanded in in manchester um which was in um and the building was on the edge of a park and in and the the building had been historic it was on the edge of the park but it didn't look at the park and the renovation the architects were called muma that were involved and they were basically opening up these views and they built an extension on the back so that really the um the building you could see the park and it, it mm. didn't feel like it was just like this chunk on the mm. on the corner um 
And I'd done these other projects with trees and the, the director wanted me, had this idea about this tree. And so I went and I had a look and the work that she was talking about wouldn't work. But I spotted this line of trees um, and then I noticed that, you know, they seemed evenly spaced, but then there was a gap. Um, and so one of the trees had died mm. and um, they'd had to, re and they'd removed it. So I got obsessed with this dead tree and then discovered Mooma, basically I was talking to the architects and they'd done all these LIDAR scans when they'd gone in to survey mm -hmm. to do their original proposals to, uh, for the competition for the building. So they'd, they'd scanned the trees by accident. So um, so they sent me the scan, which I sent to them. They laughed. It was this really <laughs> shit um, scan. Um, because obviously they weren't, they weren't, they didn't mean to scan the trees. Right. But they did scan them. So the dead tree that was gone was in the scan. Mm -hmm. But it was a really simple line drawing. And obviously, uh, probably from looking at it, probably there were branches overlapping that had become like one line or mm -hmm. something. You couldn't really totally work it out. Um, so I, I kind of got interested in that kind of idea again of like slippage and interpreting mm -hmm. this kind of really um, precise data and yeah. how we always think about computing and all of this stuff is this really precision, yeah. you know, rational yeah. mm -hmm. data um, collecting tools. But how, how subjective all of this data is, we still, you know, how we interpret it yeah. or how we translate it. Um, so yeah, so I met, made Sky Team make me a set of, we made a set of models, um, which were kind of thinking about these lines. Um, and that, yeah, I wanted to go to London and I went to London with this mad suitcase with this huge oh, model. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, that was insane. Um, with this model. Because I knew that as soon, if I just took, if I was like one step further behind when I met the structural engineers, the structural engineers were going to determine what the sculpture looked like. So um, we, I did, we did all this modeling with paper and cardboard here. I made this kind of weird, like fin. Yeah, it was like, a, <clears throat> if you were to cut it, like the tree trunk, it looked like, I think I remember you kept calling it like a book, yeah, like yeah. open. Like if you opened so a book and a broke the spine. Yeah. <clears throat> and yep. then as it grew, each branch became like its own sort of. So you thought thin. by the end of the page, because bait going up, and then at some point maybe the page would become a branch. Yeah. Um, but obviously, again, it, each of the the endpoints, whatever you want to call them, was was true to the profile that was in the data in the, the scan yeah. there wasn't enough information in the lidar to have made the trunk to make the texture of the trunk um. so i i kept thinking about it in the, in this way it was, it was so that you have this kind of star thing coming out so anyway so yeah i, I went to london with this suitcase with <laughs> this um model in it and then I was like, okay, you got to make this. <laughs> and they were kind of a bit shocked. Um, so, yeah. But that was really interesting. So the, the structural engineers then had the problem of how to translate this thing that we'd made in cardboard. Um, and um, though I think one bit of it, wasn't it laser cut paper or something? But anyway, There yeah. were a few versions because I remember, yeah, there was like a version where... 
<clears throat> it was very like naughty, you know, with mm -hmm. like the bits of the tree. You could kind of have like a very profile mm. of the tree it was. And there was another version that was very like angular, very um, mm -hmm. rational. But yeah, I thought it was super interesting because we got to meet the mm -hmm. team when we were there mm -hmm. and just to hear their side of the thing of like, because <laughs> they, <clears throat> I think when we handed off the project to them, it kind of, they just kind of went with it. it was, there wasn't a lot of like, oh, what did you guys, I think they were mostly talking to you most of the time, you know, like trying to figure out. Well, the fabric, well, then we got some fabricators involved. So then it became more a combination between, between triangle yeah. between me and the fabricators and the structural engineers. engineers, because of course we couldn't, that we couldn't have single pieces of, st it was in, it was in, um, polished stainless steel. Um, the sheets weren't big enough, so there had to be welds on it. Mm. And I didn't want the welds, mm -hmm. but if they, if they ground the welds down to make it look like single sheets, then they got rid of the surface mm -hmm. on the mirror surface. So we were kind of went round and around in terms of how the welds could be, what they should look like. Um, so it's a kind of mirrored thing in the landscape. Mm -hmm. um, so in the winter, the tree is really kind of linear and quite graphic because mm. the, the other trees in the row of all then they 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 um they have no leaves on them mm -hmm. so you really see it as a kind of graphic thing um and it catches the light in the like when it's with the moon and stuff like that um and then in the winter i mean in the summer it kind of disappears in all of the canopy of the trees but then it absorb it sucks up all the green so mm -hmm. the surface then starts reflecting all the green of all the leaf um and then it's outside this kind of the cafe which was mm. this new kind of glass box on the the back of the museum, which has these um, mirrored stainless steel mullions that come mm. down. So the the tree kind of is in conversation with the architecture of the um, of the building, but um, but it was kind of, for me the thing that was really scary was that I had this model, this this little model. And then I never saw it again until we properly, until we stood it up outside mm -hmm. the um, museum with the crane because the workshop wasn't big enough <laughs> to put the tree together for me to see it. Not that there was anything I could do, <laughs> but um, that, was, that was kind of weird. That was the first time, I think, maybe, that I'd made anything where the fabrication process was fixed. Like we made all these decisions in um in the engineering and the, the and then it was like all the pieces were water cut they mm. were marked they came they they were delivered in the sequence because the workshop wasn't big enough you know <laughs> and each piece was made and then like covered up mm. and i saw the pieces lying down mm. but i didn't see them standing up wow um so the modeling and all the stuff that i did with with um the sky team was really essential really yeah. and it was really weird because it looked like a big version of the cardboard <laughs> model I was like, whoa um yeah, awesome. <clears throat> yeah i gotta say your, your practice is very uh, similar to how architecture you know works you know you got the coordination you got yeah. you know your drawings yeah, like 
it's 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 very 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 similar from what i'm getting mm-hmm. you know yeah and you're really at a certain point like uh, right now you mentioned that it's like at a certain point the fabrication of that tree it was just a matter of waiting and just to see it come to there was nothing you could do yeah, yeah. and so. similar to the the boy buildings come together a lot of the time it's just a matter of like waiting seeing how it turns out yeah <laughs> pretty much sometimes it's scary though because something that you didn't see in the model yeah and then it's huge and you're like shit (laughs) that well should be on the other side that happens all the time yeah you know you're looking down on the table on the model and you're not lying on the floor looking up that's why i hate sketchup (laughs) (laughs) you work in sketchup no i don't i can't do it i hate (laughs) it i know it's really easy but no i'm a cardboard model person that's good because it's much easier, even with my phone. You know, I take pictures mm. with on my phone, and it's like more the the point of view of me, yeah. because SketchUp can like do weird angles, yeah. and so everything looks great, and you look like you can kind of whoosh through yeah. this thing, and then you you build it, and then you're just like, what the fuck is that? Yeah. You know, and it was in the model the whole <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah. Um, so, but you just didn't see it because yeah. No, but I think I think even just that really dumb thing about like gluing and sticking yeah. things together that you realize that you had to stick a surface to a, sur- a face mm-hmm. and you're like oh how am i in terms of real construction you know is that baseboard going to stick out how do i make it flush or yeah. just the you know the, like the or- details the and- se- well it's about sequencing isn't it yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and i think coming from europe again in terms of like architecture because there's so much there's so little space and mostly people are going into existing historic buildings. Mm-hmm. People are very good at resourceful at fitting lots of shapes into using all the negative space, yeah. you know, to, to like have cover, like have a wall that makes a cupboard on the other mm-hmm. side. Or I can't remember the name of the architect that's here that, that does really cool shape, does something similar. He's got, he's got a lot of properties in Little Italy. Ted Smith. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm really shit Jonathan on people's Siegel. name. Jonathan But anyway, yeah. But basically, he's done a lot of, like, um, live workspaces that are mm-hmm. all really odd shapes, mm-hmm. but really u- really utilizing every bit of the space. Probably Ted. And some of them are really... I lived I lived in a loft, one of those lofts, while I was... Um, when we were remodeling our house. Mm. Um, but um, I really enjoyed that because yeah. it's just, like, some of the people... I feel like sometimes here people don't they just think there's loads of room so they oh, they do these rectangles <laughs> yeah. and then you don't really think well actually if all the services came up the middle and you had yeah. the bathroom and the kitchen like that yeah. you could have all this other cool stuff yeah. they just kind of do this other stuff and uh, Richard was always complaining about that in terms of I don't even know if he's doing that building <laughs> <laughs> the ceilings all got lowered because they didn't think of some other kind of yeah, the thing mechanical stuff <laughs> anyway so I don't know. But for me, modeling, like making paper and those kind of models, that makes you, I guess, if you have the mindset, you start noticing. Yeah. Like, oh, this isn't, how do I make it flush with that? Or it's going to stick out. Yeah, it's Um, a great tool. So. How do you feel about criticism? What do you mean? You're going to be mean to me now? (laughs) No, no. no. Because, um... Depends. We experience. <laughs> we, we talked about it before, and we experience it all the time. And there's good criticism, and there's bad criticism. Um, there, I, I guess. Let me reward it. There's 
constructive criticism. I think, yeah, I think constructive criticism is really important. I'm terrible, actually. My students hate me because I'm one of those people that you're, always... You're a teacher and you, you got to give them something to work with, right? I'm terrible, though. I'm really bad at it because I always point out all the things that are wrong, which I think has been constructive hmm. because, <laughs> like, just saying, yay, that's fantastic yeah, is yeah. not very helpful. Exactly. Um, but the culture seems to be that you have to stroke <laughs> everyone and pat them first. <laughs> And then you sort of stick the knife in or the pin or whatever and poke them a bit. And I'm trying to be better about remembering that. So I don't know if that's a British thing or if it's just my thing. But, um, yeah, I, I, yeah. So I think it's, I'm trying to get better as a teacher anyway about how I phrase my criticism. Because I can be a bit, um, I probably did it with them as well. I can be a bit abrupt. Uh Rather than saying thank you, that was really great, but... I just like go, but what's that? And I forget all the nice stuff at the front. But no, I think criticism is really important. And I think, again, that's why in terms of having a peer group or whatever Mm -hmm. the hell you want to call it, um, that we make our own families. You know, we make these group of people that, and and I think it's really important, like thinking of it like a team that you have people in different spots. Mm -hmm. So they're not all cheerleaders. You need some difficult people yeah. in defense or attack you need some different players in there who and you but you can measure things like you know i have people that you know if they tell me something's a great idea my i'm giving them one of my ideas and they say it's great i know i'm not going to do it yeah. I'm like, okay <laughs> um and then some of these friends get really pissed off because you know they they really have to put a lot of effort into criticizing, you know, yeah. critiquing these ideas. And then they're like, but you never do anything that I say. <laughs> and it's like when they don't do it properly, if they don't engage with the process, because they know I'm not going to do whatever they say because I never do what they say, so they don't take it seriously, it doesn't work <laughs> if that makes any sense. So it's like, you know, you, you, you put people in these positions. Yeah. Um, and then I think they're really useful in terms of measuring measuring us i think the other thing that's difficult when we're just starting off is sometimes you make a piece of work you make something and everyone gets really excited about it and that can sometimes trap you or get you stuck in a groove that you didn't necessarily intend to be in Mm -hmm. that you might Mm -hmm. um so you you kind of get encouraged to repeat or develop further that kind of whatever it might be um or, um, you know, or you don't really know why you think what's great about X is this and everyone else is looking at it and they're seeing something else. Yeah. So I think it also takes a while in terms of building up a, a portfolio or building up, a, you know, establishing whatever. I style is such a horrible word, but, you know, whatever, whoever you are mm-hmm. that... Um, so that you so you can feel more confident that people are having a more holistic um response to like if they're into your work yeah hmm. they they really understand what they're in for or what you know what you do yeah um i think being an artist and being a, an architect is really difficult because often well the way that i work and, and the way that architects work you're often working for a client right and so um it's a fine balancing act between you're theoretically the creative uh, Mm. driving force in this adventure, but there's so much ego. Yeah. 
and other stuff involved, you know, but ultimately it's their money. So, yeah. you know, and there's and there's limitations and there's restrictions. So whether it's a museum or a gallery that has a certain type of audience mm -hmm. or it has certain type of pragmatic restrictions to do with health and safety and mm -hmm. access and all of that stuff that uh, you have to consider or if it's actually like a wealthy, you know, a private individual or a corporation asking for a public artwork or in my case maybe something to go in their in their garden or in their house yeah. mm. um you there's still it's about negotiating and sometimes that can be kind of complicated as in terms of you know sometimes you feel uh, it sometimes it can really feel like a service industry mm, yeah and it's not about getting big for your boots and having a big head yeah but um you know it can be quite um a mindfuck sometimes in terms yeah. of navigating you know sometimes you if you're lucky you'll meet some people and it really will be like i have some cl collectors who i totally love and i know they so totally support me and they can be critical of me and i trust them and um and then there are other people who you know i feel really wary around because i'm really aware that it's their money if they don't like what i say it's all going to go away. Yeah. The thing isn't going to happen. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Sometimes you feel a bit like a court jester mm -hmm. or a clown, you yeah. know, that you have to go to the fancy party and yeah. you're singing for your supper. And um, emotionally, you know, psychically, that can be sometimes that's really yeah difficult. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's very similar to, you know, mm -hmm. what we do as well. I mean, at least... Um, how you uh, portrayed it, it's, you have different camps as far as just the, under the umbrella of criticism. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you have the um, the academic kind of environment, and then you have your friends and colleagues who you probably would trust the most mm -hmm. for constructive criticism. And then you have a client sometimes, right, um, which is their money that you're trying to please. But then you also have another, um, which would be the, uh, the public or the a spectator right mm -hmm. or somebody who's not very familiar with art do you pay attention to those type of uh and not only just that just not just the public but also art critics um that's like another um sometimes and sometimes not i think we all you know i think you have to make yourself vulnerable to make work yeah in any creative thing and I think um, so. There's always so you always feel there's always a tender spot. So I mean, it's a kind of one of those catch twenty two things. Like I don't really want to look at that stuff. Um, you either feel disappointed mm -hmm. because it they don't say anything of any significance, <laughs> yeah. or you feel wounded because yeah. they said something mean. They said something mean or dismissive or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like there's less and less criticism at the moment um, anyway. Mm. Um, I feel like that maybe the kind of stretch now of, of, of um, social media like mm. and all of these different platforms means that, that a lot of things have got reduced down to it's like a liking yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. But... Um, it's it's certainly kind of thrilling when somebody notices something you've done and they write about it in yeah. a sensitive or thoughtful manner. Yeah. 
even if that's the way that you haven't necessarily considered the work yeah um yeah you're like wow this person took the time and to notice this Mm. um and so that that's a kind of you know makes it worth getting out of bed (laughs) 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 and and keeping going but yeah but um yeah i don't know i mean i i find at the moment i i find it quite hard making work at this moment in history i just feel that you know everything will write itself probably but everything a lot of things just seem to be so much about very seem to be very superficial in terms of status and glamour kind of a display of wealth and power looking back historically there are some really significant art collections in major american museums Mm -hmm. Um, that were that were um, formed, you know, in the 30s or the 40s or in the 70s, you know, from young professional people, again, hanging out, just being in the right place at the right time right. and being involved with a group of artists um, when those artists were kind of like emerging, defining their work and maybe buying small things. So like people... There's like one guy I know has this really significant collection of like postcards. There was a whole period when people did a lot of kind of like mail art. But there's this other couple whose names I can't remember who were. One of them worked as a, in the post office in Washington or something. They were in the work for the UPS or whatever, you know. But they basically went to all these openings and they didn't have very much money. And they bought really small things for their apartment, lots of really small things. But over 20 or 30 years... Basically, they had this incredible mm. portrait or snapshot of this moment in time, mm-hmm. and they had all these major these artists that then became mm-hmm. major artists. And I think in maybe early, t- I'm probably getting all the dates wrong, but um, basically they gifted their collection to the um, one of the big museums in Washington. Um, and I, I I don't know, and I just think things like that were really amazing because listen having read like some of the some about some of the responses from the artists about those people it was like those people were important in terms of participating in the kind of social aspect of the going to exhibitions that they were there Mm -hmm. getting getting thrown you know five hundred dollars every now and again at that time Mm -hmm. when not you don't have any money Mm. was huge yeah so you know um there's and also it's about you know the collection holistic i mean i guess overall it tells it's like a portrait of the people that owned it mm. but it's also a, like a snapshot of a moment in time yeah. and i think um there are different ways of collecting and there's different ways of supporting people yeah um and i guess um you know there's all those gofundme things and stuff like yeah. now to me that, that those things some of those things are kind of exciting yeah and i've certainly not spent very much money but you know i've thrown a yeah. hundred dollars and into certain things that i'm like okay i can afford that you know and it um i don't do it very often but um i've done that for some people that i don't know who they are and a couple Mm -hmm. of times for people who i do know who they are um but i think there are these different systems in place now where people can take a little bit more control and that there's other ways of making these kind of informal networks larger so that's a really positive thing i guess about the internet and stuff that you can potentially you know do startups 
or make an art project or a prototype yeah. or a movie maybe. Yeah. Um, because I think there's lots of people that want to be involved in creativity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't really know how, how to, yeah. how to connect. Yeah. I don't know, but that doesn't no. really answer about criticism. But no, no I mean, I, I, I love that because, um, I mean, I'm, I do something similar, you know, I, I go to the shows here at the bodega or, you know, where they have them here at the barrio. And like you said, I feel it's more important. It's, it's almost like, a since, you know, we went to school here mm-hmm. and we're here, it, it, it's almost like, um, a, a sense of responsibility to support at least a little. So I do buy little things here and there. And then it's true with the internet. You buy something that you like from an artist, even if it's small, they give you like a sticker on that and like their Instagram name or something. Mm-hmm. And then you check them out and then you see all their work and then you see their friends work and then you start kind of like opening up your palette and expanding out to more artists. And I think it's really important to support uh, the people who are, you know, doing it and especially from your community. Um, oh, yeah. From here. No, it's really exciting around here. Just watching how in the time I've lived here how it's kind of changed and all these yeah. different things is it you know there's all those little restaurants and cafes yeah, over yeah. there that's where the art galleries is yeah, yeah. the bodega yeah. and then bread and soul you know which is much more kind of old school cause, yeah. but i mean there's some sometimes there's some cool things happening there joe yorty who was one of my grad students he has a little space just further up here yeah. um and um yeah i just think that you know accumulatively lots of little small gestures yeah. add up to something it's kind of like that butterfly effect yeah. thing mm. you know we can change the world you can yeah. make things different yeah. just do a little bit if everyone does a little thing then accumulatively that makes something really fantastic and it could be a really great party yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah for me uh, at least for me it's very exciting because um like when i was young I, my parents didn't have the means to like go and buy art or an mm-hmm. art gallery and like at this scale, you know, it's it's not like I'm spending a lot of money, mm. but there's a there, there's the energy there, you know. Like yeah, you're, yeah, yeah, you're totally. interacting with the, with the artist. You're telling, oh, I love this. Can I buy this off of you? Or you yeah. know, it's like it's very exciting. Yeah, it's it's if you know people don't do it, they should do it more. Um, and it doesn't cost that much. And it's just like even like being there, um, it's it's a form of support. And I think it's important because San Diego was like we talked earlier. Not a I want there to be something like that with architecture, though. Though I'm sure it'd be a nightmare. Oh, it's never gonna happen. No, but <laughs> I just think there's lots of there's a few projects I've seen in in the UK and stuff in terms of like kind of different versions of social of social housing. Yeah. Um, in terms of like you know, people getting older, like the um, I think um, yeah, having different types of needs. Yeah. Like you know. And so that some people are buying a property together or, or a plot of land mm-hmm. and then self and then building a structure mm-hmm. where everyone's going to have different size yeah. units in it. Some of them have like shared communal yeah. like laundry spaces. Some of them are more, some of them are very where every unit is independent. Yeah. You know, they're still like, you know, but then I saw one recently somewhere in the north of England where it was like a street um two streets and then basically the space in the middle is pedestrianized so all the gardens so that all the children um like can play mm. in that middle bit there's no cars and that's shared space but there's also a lot of there's a like a one of the buildings is like a sheltered housing for older people um 
I mean, we'll see. So they, um, but the, the there's a kind of sh- there's a kind of shared space that overlaps. So the older people get to interact with these kids. Mm. I don't know, but it just. I mean, I'm sure there's certain things. I mean, you'd have to be the right type of person to buy into it. Like oh, yeah. it wouldn't work for every yeah. old person <laughs> yeah. or every that, young that family. Type of stuff is just much more common in Europe. Because I remember, like, when I did the study abroad in Rome, we were actually, our housing, our student housing was um, in, the first floor was for older people. Mm -hmm. And we would, like, you know, they were all Italians that didn't speak a word of English. But Mm -hmm. when we learned a little bit of Italian, we would kind of have small conversations with them. But, yeah, it's because there's no space and people have to, Mm -hmm. you know, they kind of have to do what. Yeah. They're like living on top of each other, basically. Yeah. yeah um, Frank Lloyd Wright did something similar. You remember the uh, was the Usonian houses? Like he basically got a bunch of people who were young couples, uh, young professionals, barely starting careers, and they all pitched together and they bought some land, mm-hmm. and he built houses there. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't really like a clear definition what what was your lot, or there was mm-hmm. nothing like that. It was just kind of like combined. And then it became kind of difficult later to separate the land. Yeah. Then you know, but but the idea was there at the beginning. It was very I don't know I guess hippie like, <laughs> where it was like a, a a combined ownership and everybody kind of shared. Um, everybody knew each other and it was it was almost it was very, it was very beautiful in a way, where you can you know go to your neighbor's house and go in and out and, um, kind of grow together, grow old together. But mm-hmm. um, that idea here is just. It doesn't. It doesn't work. <laughs> I think. Well, I don't know. I think that. I think there's a way. But I think things like to me, things like that are exciting in terms of different ways of thinking about architecture, t- yeah. certain type of architecture. Um, you know, because you know maybe when you get older, you have a property to sell. Right. You know, so to be able to go into something, you know, there's different types of different points when people have yeah. some money or different things that they want. Yeah. Um, and there's lots in terms of some of those, the shared ownership things that I know about in the UK, you know, that's partially funded by like the state, you know, um, mm. social housing and you, you part by then they're for like no, mostly supposed to be for people that would be nurses or teachers, you know, mm-hmm. um, as a way of them being able to live in the city. But it's all sort of set up in this, I guess it would be like a trust. So, you know, when you sell it, it has to be sold back through the thing. Mm. So you don't make as much money as you might make in the, like, the free market. Mm-hmm. But as it's a way of keeping people, like, moving through. Mm-hmm. And also, I think, in terms of the way a lot of that stuff works, like once you've got a mortgage, it's easier to get another mortgage. Mm-hmm. It's the, the hard thing for people at, at, when you're young at the beginning is to get enough capital together to get into that property ladder because everything's so expensive. Mm-hmm. But the culture, the society is still totally set up, especially here, that that's what you have to do, mm-hmm. that you need to own as opposed to rent. Mm-hmm. So it's this ridiculous situation. So I, to me, the, I think that that's something that would be really fantastic to yeah. look at and think about in terms of different kind of use and like why do we, how do people live mm-hmm. and what kind, what do they need at certain points you know um and maybe you know you want in on something and you don't need to triple your money but it's about getting established having your first home yeah mm-hmm. 
um, and then you you know you have enough of a thing that you can step out of that and go into the next mm-hmm. into some other kind of part of your life I don't I don't know but I think some of those models are kind of exciting and yeah yeah definitely <clears throat> I wanted to ask a question about um, like what you think about so we kind of talked a little bit about the the clay thing and then the the steel tree and when I think about those two projects it's like one is very temporal you know it's very temporary the the clay, the clay? <clears throat> and the steel tree is like it's not going to go anywhere anytime soon so like how do you sort of think about both of those projects in terms of like just time and how I think yeah I think I had initially I was really anxious about the steel tree because of because of that and it made me really freak, really worried. And then also mm. because of the way that it was made. Like, I felt like we had a lot of, like, I got you to try out lots of different things when we were doing the modeling at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have this vague memory that there was a little bit of kicking and screaming at the beginning because you thought it was really stupid what I was trying to get you to do. Um, but anyway, I think it really worked out. It was just like I had this idea in the back of my head and we made it work so it felt like that whole bit of the process to me was really creative um and then from the next bit on it just became really pragmatic mm-hmm. and um so i was really anxious when the tree was installed because normally when i make something i don't really know how it's going to come out and that's the excite that's the reason to do it so with the clay it was a system that we mm. were making that we were building that we didn't even know till the day that we first if it was actually going to work but you know the, the 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 steel structure, the aluminium structure, was what we needed to you know make to deliver the clay. But the clay was what I was really interested in more than the printer, and more right, than the, yeah, the machine. The machine, the machine was a tool yeah. um, that I wanted to be as invisible as possible. You know, which is so which caused a lot of technical problems because if it had been more structural the 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 mountain the clay would have the the delivery of the clay would have been easier but i made it really open mm. um but anyway i don't know i'm being really confusing so the um for me in terms of time with the tree the silver tree i think when i realized its relation to its site changed so the as i said before like the tree in the winter looks the, one way yeah, the and the experience of it in the summer is totally different and it is a really interactive thing. Like I've seen, like children. I mean, I haven't seen it recently, but it was pretty <laughs> shiny when we saw it. Um, all of those kind of um, wedge shapes or the fins or whatever you want to call that. Some of them are really close together, and some of them are further apart. So, like children in particular, you can kind of stand in the triangle mm-hmm. and be really close to it. Um, so I think the experience of actually engaging with it, actually interacting, coming close to it, standing back from it, you know, it doesn't do anything. But again, those are kind of phenomenological experiences, which again, mm-hmm. I guess, is similar to architecture, mm-hmm. um, that you want to encounter it. Um, the weather affects it. Um, the light affects it. And again, the seasons. So it becomes like a mirror. So in that sense, even though the, it's, a fixed thing that it isn't itself changing the experience of it changes so that was kind of my rationale mm. with how i decided it was okay in the end but I, but um 
yeah, it was really it was a really weird experience seeing it installed because it was a kind of weird anticlimax. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing, but at the same time, it looked exactly like I expected it <laughs> yeah. to look. And so it was. It, there was a weird thing that I never really had before. Like, I was like, oh, like this. You know, we set up the machine, <coughs> and then we had the whole trauma of having to coax the code and the clay and get it to, to, to behave. And and then since then, I've salvaged bits of that. <coughs> so I have a show in Edinburgh at the moment with all these ceramics, which are basically pieces that I... Um, Just like fragments of the... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they're from the one in London that you saw. So when we smashed it up to get out of the gallery, I kind of cut pieces out of it. I think the the thing for me that's nice about the clay is that the machine becomes like an armature. And um, every time I've done the clay, it's been totally different. The code is apparently the same. <laughs> um, but I'm though I'm not convinced that it is. But anyway, apparently it's the same. Um, but the three outcomes have been totally different. It's not... Um, something you can just plug in yeah. and like let it go and it's a little bit too exciting <laughs> it's a little too stressful um so yeah it would be nice to somehow miraculously get a substantial amount of money to spend some time you know actually looking at the programming and the code and like maybe start again start from scratch um but i don't know if that's necessary is there um i mean your your work is so you know like varied and um i guess like for for instance the project of the trio is very um driven by sight i guess um the the piece with the clay one was originally as well so the piece the the beautiful minds piece was commissioned for i was asked to make a show at the mm -hmm. museum of contemporary art here downtown in that huge space. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, a lot of the work often starts with a kind of really cliched response to a place. Mm -hmm. um, so I started, it was the railroad tracks, the train stops, the train doesn't go across the border, which I always thought was really weird. Mm -hmm. You know, it stops here, then you have to get off, you have to go across the border, <laughs> and then maybe you can get on another train. I don't even know if you can get on another train. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, And the way that people often talk about San Diego is it's like it's in the it's like the end of the world. <laughs> and I'm just like, what do you mean it's the end of there's a whole like the continent continues yeah. going down. There's this all these incredible, amazing places. Yeah. You know, Central and South America going on. But somehow my my feeling about it was that everyone talks about San Diego as like it's the end of the it's like the end of the line mm -hmm. it's like not la you know <laughs> it's hemmed in by mountains on the east side you know the, they tried to get the railroad to come across to come here mm. but because of the the t terrain you know the, the railroad went across to la and then it comes down on a spur you know all of the military are here but it sounds like that the, the navy tricked You know, that was a kind of trick yeah. that actually San Diego wasn't actually really a perfect bay, you know. Right. They got the military to agree to come and then they had to do all this engineering to yeah. actually make it possible. 
So um, I just, you know, I thought that that was really funny. And then noticing also, of course, again, another cliche about Southern California is everyone drives everywhere. You have to drive everywhere. Right. Um, and there's massive of land, um, you know, they're always moving dirt, building the freeways. These, I don't know what you call them, these huge berms or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, massive land movement, which no one takes any notice of because you just take it for granted. So again, if you go north of, of La Jolla, all out there, there's all those kind of fancy gated, what would you call them? Those kind of gated communities right. of quite upscale. They all seem quite upscale, but, you know, they're almost, they've kind of cut the tops off. Yeah. What are they? Hills, canyon, like whatever. Terraces. Right? Yeah, just, they're like, doing all that terracing, but there's a lot of really quite dramatic, extensive engineering yeah. land movement. And then there's, of course, where they filled in all of the canyons on the border to build that road for um, Homeland Security yeah. or whatever. Mm. They filled all the... Um, so when you go to Laurelis Canyon, yeah, the valleys, the, that, there's that huge culvert that now comes through to Laurelis Canyon um, for the river, and they built around. And I think that was because, the, you know, they got fed up of having to drive up and down. Yeah. So it's easier for them to surveil the border. Um, so I was just like, wow, there's all this stuff that's going on that nobody's paying any attention mm. to because it's just not, they just think it's normal. Right. Um, but it's pretty epic. Yeah, it's a lot of disturbance. A lot of disturbance, yeah. yeah. Um, so so that was kind of... And then I sort of thought also, because I'm at UCSD, which is this huge <laughs> STEM campus, yeah. massive engineering school. So I started thinking about that, and I was like, okay, this is really perfect. You know, to see... I was hoping to get the engineers to help me. <laughs> I'm like, I've got all... I'm surrounded by all these really smart people... <laughs> yeah who know how to do shit. Yeah. This is really fantastic. So I've got clay. And then I was thinking about like adobe and, you know, all again, all these really ancient building construction techniques, basically mm-hmm. using rammed earth. Mm-hmm. So I knew I u- wanted to use earth and I wanted to move earth. And then I had this idea of bad things moving. So um, initially the, ga- the exhibition was going to have a huge rammed earth wall. Mm. Nice. And then on one side of it was going to be this machine that was going to make this mountain. Mm. Um, and then they, it still did have, I made these kind of pallets out of stone. So I collected all of this. This area used to be a huge, uh, there's a lot of granite. There's a lot of quarries here. They've all closed down. But there used to be a lot of um, stone cut in this region as well. So I found this, um, it's up near Vista, I found this um, place that was closing down and it was basically they're now going to stop. They were going to turn it into a like gravel pit. They were, but they had been for years um, cutting architectural stone. And that's so I got all of these offcuts of granite mm. from them, which was from that mountain. Oh, wow. Um, so again, it was an industry that was local yeah. that has now become outmoded because it's cheaper to get stone from China. um then to process it here so again yeah so that was kind of how it came to be so i mean then obviously i took it to london it had nothing to do with london except that i used local clay but um the logic behind the show was in my mind site specific Mm. 
or at least the narrative that started off yeah. the journey. And then the work becomes the work. And then it shifts depending on where it, where it goes or mm. um, though maybe it doesn't fit as neatly. But, I um, see. Well, it, um, that's interesting. Where I guess where I'm, I'm wondering if uh, if you have like some like a medium in mind that you've never worked with that you're really interested in working or a technology like like virtual reality or something like that something that's gonna be mm, don't know I don't know about virtual maybe virtual have you ever rea- tried it no mm. <laughs> I well I've done like they they have this crazy thing at school but it always makes me sick I freak out. They yes. do a lot of it for weirdly for medical stuff. Oh yeah, it's a bit, it's like a sketch up on steroids, yeah. where you're like in this space with all these different like cells yeah. and things whizzing past you. Mm. Um, so um, Abel has a virtual reality rig. Okay, an <laughs> Oculus Rift thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I think for me, often the thing that I suppose the thing that I'm really interested in, invested in is materials. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of curious. I think that a lot of the time we don't really think about really basic stuff. Like right. when I was talking about model making. Yeah. And literally mm-hmm. when you're sticking yeah. two things together, you realize how yeah. like, oh, shit, I need to think about that. Yeah. So in terms of thinking about like dirt, yeah. people just buy bricks. We buy these things. We don't mm-hmm. really think about, well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, some of these processes are really ancient. I mean, there was, it's finished now, but when I was researching making the clay, um, the, the printer, they, um, there was a company, they've, they've fin- since they've made it now, but they were looking at doing 3D printing clay houses mm. as a way of, of going out into um, like the desert, going to mm. places where people didn't have much money and there's no, but they had dirt. Mm. And literally they, um, it was an Italian company um, but they're now, they've now, you know, made this machine and they can 3D print a house. Mm. Um, but I think one of the, the, you know, I was excited about that, that one of the driving the impetus behind it was about using resources that are over, yeah. overlooked. So I guess for me, in terms of virtual reality, that's, it's a, that's an emotional experience, I guess, in terms of... Yeah being in a space but i'm really interested in um the kind of tactile the um, physical aspect of the physical aspect yeah or i always think of it as like a phenomenological thing yeah which is to me a kind of combination of a kind of emotional and physical affect you know um and that was what the silver tree did that i was surprised by i was really relieved that it did it but you know i i wasn't really wasn't really sure it's really interesting that you um, talk about phenomenology because that's like one of my um, favorite, I guess, schools of thoughts in architecture. Mm-hmm. And there aren't very people, very many people doing it anymore. Um, I guess, you know, starting in the 80s, but uh, Stephen Hall and uh, Peter Zumther are the only two who, who are amazing architects mm-hmm. who are kind of pushing that sort of uh, theory of, of architecture. And it's, they have beautiful work. Um, it's it's just really interesting that you kind of touch on that. Um, where did, did did you did you start doing that in school or 
um, where did you start picking up on like sort of like the but I think I think it's to do with coming out of the theater I think everything comes back to the theater being like the brought feeling, up emotion well yeah but I think it's about um, yeah an experience because if you right. go to the theater and you sit there you know you it's it's you know whatever it is it happens they you know the performers are doing the same thing technically every day or however mm -hmm. you know it's a totally different to a film yeah um, and there's something about sitting in an audience or even going to see a, a band play mm -hmm. to see live music. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing when you go to see a great show. You know, it's a combination of the, the whoever's on the stage, whether that is a play or a poetry reading or an opera or a rock group, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, and who you're, who you're with. So that, that and that's your smaller group of like you and your mates. But then also larger, mm -hmm. you know, if there's some assholes, you yeah. know, just there. <laughs> that totally ruin you know yep. you can't shut that out yeah. um when we see a film you know you're in your own world you don't have to engage with anyone else it's just you and this thing yeah and um so i suppose yeah for better or worse that 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 social aspect or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. about all of those elements kind of playing into the experience mm -hmm. and a bit bit that it can even happen in terms of going to eat sometimes mm -hmm. you know or having a big family meal yeah. and mm -hmm. getting through it that fighting mm -hmm. with you know <laughs> or whatever or a wedding or yeah. a funeral mm -hmm. you know there's all this other stuff going on um that makes that event memorable and um i suppose i'm interested in in the, all of those different senses and how you know um, you know, going to being in a good building yeah. can mean it depends what the building is, what it needs to do. Right. But um, how we live in buildings, or um, and how you know, public buildings have to function in a different way to domestic spaces. Mm -hmm. But it's about that thing of how can a space change and evolve with my mood with the time of you know mm -hmm. sometimes you want a space to be cozy and you want to feel safe mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. other times you want you know a space to be more expansive and you you know depending on what what's going on i i don't know so i suppose somehow those are the kind of things which make me think about in terms of making an artwork that um my work doesn't do that at all but i'm just talking rubbish now but i mean just <laughs> But about the thing about how important it is to be with the thing. Yeah. And that you can get so much from a thing from looking at an image of it. Yeah. But when you're in a space, if it smells or if it's damp or mm -hmm. if it's dripping, you know, lots of people came to see the machine to Beautiful Minds. And depending on who they were, if they were kind of techie, you know, they would be really pissed off that it wasn't working. <laughs> And I was just like, well, well, that depends on what you mean by yeah, working. Yeah. It is working. The machine, the the, the, the head, the head is moving, <laughs> and it's the head isn't doing that. The head is staying constant. It's on its path. The clay is doing what clay does, and clay is, you know, has its own personality, yeah. you know. And the clay is, is, you know, falling over and doing all of this other stuff. So it becomes about a relationship between these two different kind of. Um, structures mm. um and then this unexpected thing happens that you can't totally predict um which to me is interesting i don't know yeah. 
but oh, it's yeah, it really is. Cool. Cool. No, like it was, <laughs> I was just thinking like it made it made a lot of sense what you were talking about, just with you know, putting in perspective that, you know, going to a concert or going to yeah, because you don't really think about it in those terms of like right. you're actually there with a bunch of other people that are also there to go watch the same thing that you are going and it's at the same time and it's with you know, it's like mm-hmm. all these things are all these people sort of coordinated without actually talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it's like I don't know. Um like when I guess what I was thinking about right now is we went to that O show thing in Las Vegas. Oh, the uh, Cirque du Soleil. Yeah, the Cirque du Soleil. Mm. <clears throat> and I was, I've never been to one of these things, <laughs> and I was completely like... Was it nuts? It was insane. I was in <laughs> awe, like, the whole the whole way. Yeah, the whole time I was just thinking, like, how the fuck, like, do these people, like, do this? Well, you, you missed that just tour. The... You missed the tour part, but they gave us a, a, a tour of how everything works in mm-hmm. the... In the... Like the background, and it's of, like the one in water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's incredible the amount of work they put in, and yeah. the amount of money and effort. And yeah, talent. like the whole like how synchronized they were all. Mm-hmm. Uh, just yeah, everything. I was just like blown away. <laughs> it's a performance. Yeah, yeah. But I think there's also something. I mean, about the experience of being a public, being an audience as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. You can have a shitty audience, but if you're part mm-hmm. of a good audience, it's a really amazing um, feeling, yeah. you know. And I remember, I don't know if it's goofy, but, you know, I remember the uh, inauguration of Obama was, uh, and I was at school that day, and um, and I got my class because I, I wanted to see it. Yeah. We went to this, this place where there was TVs and we watched it. But it was, to me, it was really emotional yeah. being with these people and watching this thing was really mm-hmm. um, was really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on another thing, when I was a teenager, I saw David Bowie play mm-hmm. <laughs> at Hammersmith. Nice. And then afterwards, we all came out of the concert, but it's and everyone got on the subway. So there was this moment when everyone was on all the different platforms of the train. They go, you know, and everyone was singing. Um, you know, we'd all, everyone, basically more or less everyone on the platform had come out of that concert at mm-hmm. one moment. And then we were all on the trains. And so everyone then starts going on trains, going in different directions. And it was this, it was just this really amazing buzz of being on the tube yeah. and everybody, mostly the poor people that were on the train already, they were just like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. We were all just like, whoa, it was so yeah. fantastic. Yeah. But everyone was singing. And then it was like, I lived at, in Richmond, which was like the end of the line. Mm. And it was this weird thing of, it was like, it got quieter and quieter mm. and quieter as more and more people got off. And there were still people when I got off the train that I didn't know. There wasn't probably many of us. It was probably like 15 people, yeah. but I had gone with like a couple of friends, but it was still this thing of like, oh, wow. And again, you know, it was just a really strange, um, powerful experience in terms of having this shared thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it feels it's like an energy that mm-hmm. kind of like I guess I don't know uh, goes through you or I don't mm-hmm. know what happens. Like I remember going to uh, um, a show that it was um, like electronic music, trance. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember yeah, I went hi. with a friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't know if it was the drugs or... No, <laughs> but it's amazing. And, and we got out of there and, and we both said, wow, that was, an, that was a spiritual experience. Yeah. Like we were both on like a high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we were just like... 
that was amazing and we shared it with all these people that we didn't know you know um but yeah i it's i really feel that there's some kind of energy out there that it could either be good or it could be bad too no but when it's good it's amazing yeah Yeah. but when it's bad it's not so good no because that amplified that amount of fear or terror is terror is becomes it can becomes amplified and becomes more and more dangerous but um yeah one of the questions i ask almost everybody is just like what are you are you like currently listening to anything or reading something that's cool or watching a show watching an interesting show or something i'm just watching total trash at the moment because it's the (laughs) summer um i'm reading and i can't remember the name of it i'm reading that mushroom at the end of the world book and like that is not its proper title so that is but it's really fantastic book you would really like it Mm. but it's all about um you know again all of these different things being connected Mm. um i'll text you the name of the book but um, i'm reading that the mushroom at the end of the world which is not called the mushroom at the end of the world (laughs) and i just watched this really stupid like this bob dylan um documentary that just came Mm. on netflix which is really crazy um Mm. it's a scorsese oh wow thing but um half of it's made up really so it's just like weird you're watching it and you're just like i don't know but it was just trippy and interesting again he's like they're talking about like something that happened in the 70s that he can't remember and then the next day i read a review of it because there was things about it where i was like that's really weird you know, and then I realized that half of it is kind of fictional. Wow. Anyway, that I'm watching that anyway. I don't know. Nothing very exciting, probably. <laughs> no, that's... Well, thank you for coming. Thank uh, you. I hope some of that is um, useful. That was great. Yeah, it was good. Okay. Two and a half hours flew by. Okay. Yeah. Cool.